You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. What'd you miss this week? I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Closed show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What'd You Miss? Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. This week, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, armed with a new mandate, put the threat of a no-deal Brexit back on the table. Johnson is planning to change the law to ensure that the Brexit transition phase does not stretch past the end of next year. The move immediately drew warnings from European Union officials, and all of that political uncertainty started weighing on the pound. On Tuesday, Sterling erased all of its post-election gains and slumped by the most since January. We spoke about these moves and the outlook for global FX with Win Thin. He's global head of currency strategy at Brown Brothers Harriman. We began by asking Wynn what he thought the general outlook was for the pound going forward. Well, really to me, it's all about the positioning. As the polls over the last several weeks, as the polls were showing more and more a likelihood that Mr. Johnson would get a, a good majority, people were buying sterling, taking it higher and higher. Um, you know, we talked about this on our trading desk. That we, we looked for some sort of uh, buy the rumor, sell the fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that we saw that, and that was intensified by what I think was a, you know, a bit of a curveball for Mr. Johnson. Uh, I, I think I can speak for myself and many in the market that say that the majority, uh, I mean, Mr. Johnson winning majority sort of, we thought, paved the way for uh, a negotiated settlement, deadline by January 31st, some kind of uh, talks over this year, and most likely an extension of this transition period. No one thinks that, the, that can believe that the UK and, and the EU can complete a comprehensive trade deal by the end of the year. Mm-hmm. I think someone pointed out earlier that the, U, the UK candle one took seven years. Yes. And this wow. seems to be much, much more complicated. Yeah. So I think the base case was we get the Brexit divorce sort of agreement, but the terms would be negotiated and probably extended beyond the December 2020. The reason that's so important is that during the extension period, the EU is still has the benefits of the custom union. Of course, it still has to, to abide by the EU rules and regulations. But things sort of are status quo. And to me, that's, I think, sort of the best case scenario for the global economy, for the UK and the EU. To come crashing out of that, the UK basically reverts to what you call WTO mm-hmm. rules. Right. Tariffs go up. They, loses, uh, they lose zero tariff access to the EU. It's very disastrous. So it's a very risky gambit. It's a risky gambit, and investors clearly were thinking that Boris Johnson, his administration, would took, take a more reasonable route of action. Um, given that he seems to be drawing a line and is ready to take a, play hardball and take a hard negotiating position, how do you see people positioning now going forward? I think markets will get much more neutral. Again, I think the market was overweight 
Sterling going into the election. Uh, and of course, this is after years and years of being underweight, mm -hmm. leading up to the various Brexit talks and deadlines, et cetera. Um, but I think, you know, as I think you mentioned, I think it's, it's an uncertain period, and markets hate uncertainty. So I think markets were much more uh, circumspect about going long sterling. I think there's a much more two-way risk now. Uh, to me, if we step back, the fundamentals argue for even weaker sterling. The, all this uncertainty How much weaker? Uh, I think we could theoretically go back to uh, the earlier lows from the summer around below 120. Wow. Uh, again, it depends on how this plays out. A lot of this is brinksmanship. I have no mm -hmm. doubt uh, Mr. Johnson is trying to draw a hard line and try and get a better deal. But as we saw this past year, the EU really has no patience for this. Uh, they have no, it's not in their interest to roll over for the UK. They're going to take a hard line as well. Mm -hmm. So my chance, I wrote uh, a piece earlier today right. uh, to our clients. So I see, I put 65% chance of an extension beyond December. You know, right. We talk, 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 okay, we have to extend. 10% uh, chance, which is to me small, that they actually get a deal this year. That's very mm -hmm. unlikely. I can even say 5%. Yeah. And a 25% chance of a hard Brexit, that is, it goes crashing out. It's not the likely case, but to me, 25% is not insignificant. Let's talk about the dollar for a second here. I mean, there's been a lot of forecasts out uh, for, you know, all kind of asset classes out there, obviously equities, uh, oil, fixed income. And one sort of common thread that we've seen in all these forecasts is this idea of the direction of the dollar and how that's going to play into what type of gains those assets see. Where, where do you see the direction of the dollar? Are we going to see this persistent strength that has just been the hallmark for the last few years? Well, this has been a big debate that's really... I think intensified the last several weeks. Look, mm -hmm. for, for most of this year, the strong dollar thesis was, was solid. You mm -hmm. went long, long dollars, you were, you were pretty much golden. Mm -hmm. But as we've seen other things happen, we've seen, you know, we had some ups and downs in the U.S. economy. We've had the rest of the world perhaps looking a little bit better. So that thesis to me is coming into question. I myself, and I think I'm in the minority, uh, there are a few other analysts, but I think uh, I'm in the minority um, that I'm looking for continued strength in the dollar. Mm -hmm. Not massive strength, but... Yeah. You know, it's, in order to be bearish on the dollar, you've got to be bullish somewhere else. I just, you know, I look at the UK, I look at the oh, EU, Japan. Yeah. I just can't get excited. EU at the margin may do better with the whole China-US trade phase one deal, but even that's sort of question marks. So, you know, so to me, not, if you're so negative you're, on the dollar, I say, well, if you don't like the dollar, we're going to go. Yeah. And I, I haven't gotten a satisfactory answer. Okay, so if you're still moderately optimistic on the dollar, that means all these calls about EM and the rest of the world doing better this year, that kind of falls apart, doesn't it? Because it's all... Replica, it's all, it's all centered on the idea that the dollar is going to weaken. Yes. Now, uh, the one thing I would say that uh, my strong dollar cause is, is mainly concentrated in the majors. You know, I mentioned all these other countries that are really doing poorly within the major. Mm -hmm. EM, I, I do think that with this sort of ratcheting down of the U.S.-China trade tensions, mm -hmm. uh, that there is some, some room for EM to get traction. We already have seen you know, EM come back quite nicely. And our view is, is, is relatively optimistic for EM. Again, not a raging bull market, but I think you know, enough... Between the extra carry and the relative growth rates, you know, EM can do okay. But um, you know, to me, you know, the, the, the strong U.S. dollar, strong U.S. economy is, is still overall good for the U.S. I'm sorry, for the global economy. We also took a look at the future of the streaming wars and what we can expect in the new year. We sat down with someone who is part of the fight and doing fairly well. Clint Stinchcomb is the president and CEO of Curiosity Stream. This is a streaming service that provides science and nature shows for kids and adults alike. It was founded by Discovery Channel creator John Hendricks and has over 10 million subscribers. That is more than ESPN+, HBO Now, CBS All Access, or WWE, and also up from just a million last December. We began by asking Clint about the key to that success. Well, I think that uh, you know all of us at Curiosity Stream are beneficiaries of a great founder in John Hendricks, mm -hmm. whose you know life mission has been factual entertainment of Discovery For, Channel. Yeah, he was the original founder of Discovery, and I think that uh, 
you know, if you look at Curiosity Stream today, you know, pure factual entertainment documentaries on science, history, technology, society, lifestyle, natural history, kind of his original vision for Discovery before it, you know, turned more into reality-type programming. So there's a lot of white space for a pure factual entertainment service around the world. We've been pushing on, you know, multiple subscription buckets. We're direct-to-consumer. At the same time, you know, we've been aggressive working with uh, MVPD operators around the world. And so one of the things that we've seen through all these competitors in the streaming war is just extraordinary content expenditure, and it just seems to go up and up. And if you're a consumer, that's great because lots of new shows, maybe overwhelming. But will they ever be able to tap it down? Or is the moment that these big players like Netflix and so on try to tap the brakes, that's when the subscriptions will tail off at? I, th- I think in Netflix's case, I think they have escape velocity, right? They're yeah. 160 million households today. I think they're probably going to 300 million over the next five years. And do, you know, will they go from 15 billion in programming cost to 20 to 25 to 30? I doubt it. I think they'll temper huh. that down over time. Yeah. But. I'm curious about the structure of the content here. I mean, Netflix, I mean, a big part of their uh, content appeal happens to be kind of the new shows. When Disney Plus launched, a big part of the appeal was more all the archival stuff, you know, the ability to watch, you know, Frozen or some other, you know, uh, movie from the past over and over again. For you and your company, uh, what do you see as most important? Is it that new content or is it more of the archive stuff? Well, we find that, you know, great new programming Mm -hmm. brings in new customers Mm -hmm. and new subscribers, but having a rich library Mm -hmm. really keeps them. So we have a lot library of, you know, 3,000 factual titles that mm-hmm. we curated from the best producers around the world, BBC, Zed, ZDF, you know, NHK, and also includes about 1,000 of our own original productions. All right. You mentioned MVPD a la carte deals, and you also have corporate subscriptions as well, um, an education subscription. There's obviously a lot of different providers, and consumers are kind of getting confused and getting fed up with how many different services they have to pay for separately. What happens? When does the shakeout occur and how many people will survive? Well, I think the shakeout's occurring right now. So if you look at North America, there's about 250 subscription video on demand services. If you look just over the last 18 months, you know, many of them have have ceased to operate. I mean, if you look at, and that's why it's perilous to be a niche. And so hmm. we talk about being in the in factual, it's a full category, just like news is a category, just like scripted programming right. is a category, just like movies is a category. So we feel like you've got to program to a full category. And if you're a niche, it's perilous. I mean, you know, there's horror channels, SVOD services that have shut down. CISO, which was part of Comcast, you know, big company, they're shut down. Drama Fever, super hot company eight years ago. They brought Korean dramas over to the U.S. And their proposition at the time was, you know, instead of having to spend, you know, $70, $80 to get the, you know, the highest tier on DirecTV or Dish, they're available for free on Hulu, hmm. you know, ad-supported. You know, but they're part of a bigger company, so not part of the broader strategy. They're, they're shut down. And then lots of them, just people just shutting down because of the economics. It'll be massive carnage. Do you believe that consumers have sort of a number in their head of the max that they're willing to spend on this? And whether it's 100 or more per month, they'll get the Netflix and maybe Disney and something else. And then there's a few or potentially it could it go a lot higher if the uh, if the offerings are that compelling. Yeah, I, I do think that, uh, you know, everybody kind of has that uh, uh, has that cap. You know, for yeah. a lot of people, it's certainly 60, 70, 80 dollars, maybe, you know, 100 for some. But I think what you'll start to see is, um, you know, a, a move back to bundling. Hmm. You know, Disney Plus launch, they announced the deal that they had with Verizon, where if you're a Verizon Unlimited customer, which is about 60 million people in the U.S., you get uh, Disney Plus 
free for a year. Okay, that's one example. Mm-hmm. Right. You, know, we, we, you know, we've been doing that with distributors around the world where our proposition to them is, you know, we'll provide you 3,000 titles and convey a very broad scope of rights to you, offer Curiosity Stream as part of your bank. It's basic package. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This week, we got a decision from the Bank of England. The UK central bank left interest rates unchanged at 0.75%, while two policymakers continued to push for an immediate quarter-point cut. We spoke about this with Torsten Slock, chief international economist for Deutsche Bank, and began by taking a look back at 2016 and the Brexit referendum. Current BOE Governor Mark Carney reassured the financial markets there would be money and liquidity, and that the BOE would be there to support the economy. Now, with the central bank on the eve of naming his successor, we asked Torsten just how important this pick would be to maintain stability. Yeah, so the signal from the Bank of England after the Brexit vote was certainly very important that uh, we are here to help the economy. Uh, They have been very, very clear in terms of we don't know what the outcome is and where things are going. The sterling started going down, which was helping exporters. So therefore, the economy did get a boost on the export sector and GDP didn't fall as much as the market had anticipated. So in that sense... It has actually done relatively well, the UK economy overall. Uh, But where we sit now, and given that uncertainty is behind us, it does, of course, look very important who it is that will be the new pick and who it is that we will see take over and what they will be doing in this new type of uncertainty we have in front of us. If you look at an economy like the UK's, it's fairly small, it's fairly open, uh, trades heavily with neighbours... Does it really matter, like, their own domestic policy, or are they largely at the whims of global trends and what's going on with the European economy and the U.S. economy? Absolutely. The exchange rate is very, very important for the U.K. economy because it is a small open economy. Of course, it's big yeah. by global standards, but it's relatively small relative to the U.S. Right. So when the exchange rate goes down, your exports go up, and that's been a very important part of the story of why the U.K. economy has continued to do so relatively well. Mm. So in that sense... If the domestic stage has different things going on on politics and on economics, it really is much more about what does the exchange rate do because it's softening some of the impact. This right. is also what you see in many emerging markets. Once the exchange rate goes down, it does help a lot. We would never call the UK an emerging market. Right? No, that's true. But they <laughs> also have exchange rates that move a right. lot. And this is what we saw in the UK. It's been through quite a roller coaster now, of course. But that has been driven much by a lot of this uncertainty. And that's yeah. been offsetting some of these uncertainties. It used to be very unusual for a major currency pair to move anything more than one-tenth of one percent or two-tenths of one percent. And this was because it was a very idiosyncratic risk only in the UK that the voters decided what they decided, and that just created a whole new situation. Okay, so the Financial Times is reporting that Andrew Bailey, who currently heads up the financial watchdog, is on the shortlist uh, to be the Bank of England governor. Um, I know that Joe said that there is big uh, wins that, that really determine what the Bank of England can or cannot do going forward, like the currency, but what do we know about Andrew Bailey? Is he likely to just 
it, will it likely be a smooth transition if he's going to be the one to succeed Mark Carney? The, the difficult thing about this is that we just don't know exactly what he or whoever the new candidate is, but most likely him, according to these reports, will be doing in this seat because it is a very unique situation, both with, well, maybe we'll be finishing Brexit up relatively quickly, but at the same time, we then need to go into a new negotiation about what the new trade arrangement will look like. And in that situation, that's really not his table. That's really the politicians. Mm -hmm. So he still has to maneuver in this very difficult environment where you have someone else deciding the, ultimately the speed of the UK economy relative to what monetary policy normally does. So I know we got the rate cuts right after the Brexit vote. And as you mentioned, the pound itself uh, serves as kind of a buffer or a stabilizer. Exactly. Nonetheless, are you surprised that the, mat the years and years of uncertainty about Brexit did not take a deeper toll on the economy, at least in the data? Maybe over the long term, productivity will get hit or something. Are you surprised it wasn't worse? In some sense, it's very analogous to the U.S. I mean, a lot of the uncertainty from the trade war was holding capex spending down. We also yeah. saw that in the U.K., but generally speaking, it didn't generate a recession. In the U.S., we haven't seen a recession despite this uncertainty being fairly significant. So in that sense, we were surprised that the uncertainty really hasn't had more of an impact on the economy. And it's very pleasing, of course, that the economy has been so resilient, both in the U.K. and in the U.S., despite right. that this uncertainty has been hanging over as a cloud over the outer. But now the uncertainty is starting to go away. That's, of course, very helpful. A contrast what's going on there with regards to monetary policy or potential monetary policy and what we could potentially get out of uh, Christine Lagarde and mm. the ECB. Mm. Yeah, so, of course, the ECB has uh, now still negative interest rates. We saw Sweden, interestingly, turn that around yeah. uh, today here. So we've now seen... And by turn it around, they went to zero percent. They raised <laughs> interest rates to zero, which, okay. of course, sounds... Uh, you I know. Say. I yeah. mean, but it is true that we have... Still a lot of debate, and she has now deployed the review of what is it exactly that monetary policy should consist of, what will communication be, is it a good idea with negative interest rates. The, of course, market view here is that negative interest rates continues to be that at least our interpretation is that it's not a good idea, and central banks are coming around to the damaging effects. It's of not that. a good idea, but how easily can they get out of it? So it's, of course, therefore, the review will create right. some discussions around uh, whether right. this is something that's easy to get out of or difficult to get out of, but it's clear that that has been set in motion and will now go into 2020. Will. Also, the U.S. is also in the Fed conducting a review of monetary policy that is very, very important for markets because that can mean something in terms of what are they going to do with rates? Are they going to keep the lower for longer in the U.S.? Are they going to raise rates in the euro area? All that becomes a very important part, yeah. of course, of our expectations to the central banks. We talked about the global economy. Let's talk about the U.S. economy and housing because U.S. home sales fell to a five-month low in November. And the data contrasts with other reports this week that show positive momentum across U.S. housing, of course, bolstered by low mortgage rates and job growth. And one of the reports that signal things may be improving is housing starts. Uh, that This is from earlier in the week. And you could see the long recovery uh, from housing starts, of course, certainly since the crash in 2009-2010. There you have it. And Torsten, you're pointing out that it's kind of plateaued in the last two years, but it seems like we're getting out of that. Yeah, in 2018 with SALT, it limited the deduction of interest from your mortgage. So that was pushing, as you can see in the chart, the stuff down a little bit uh, throughout 2018. But what we've seen here in 2019 is that because of exactly, as you just mentioned, Scarlett, that mortgage rates have been very, very low. And you've also seen the unemployment rate at the lowest level in 50 years. That has been lifting up the white line here. But as you can see in the chart, we are still not quite at any boom level. It's no. not that this is way out of balance in any way, similar 
similar to what you see in the chart that we were in 2006. So in that sense, we think the housing market is relatively healthy in a demand and supply sense. And with the tailwind of the labor market doing well, we are still reasonably optimistic on the housing market overall going into 2020. So one of the things that people do, I would say kind of lazily, is they conflate low interest rates with cheap money or credit availability. And it's not always linear. It's not always one-to-one. And you can have a situation in which rates are going up, but during a period of rising availability of mortgages. And you have a chart here showing that over the last several years, obviously we've seen some rate hikes, rate cuts in 2019, but there's been a steady trend up in just the availability of people, uh, the ability of people to get mortgage. Yeah, and this is also important because, as exactly you say, Joe, that interest rates and mortgage rates have been very low for quite some time, yeah. but it wasn't as easy to get a loan. And the key behind this chart here is that the FICO score required to get a qualifying mortgage has actually been going down modestly. So that means that it's actually been getting gradually easier and easier. You can see the slow move here is relatively modest, but it is still moving in the right direction. And you can see the latest data still shows that credit availability continues to improve. All right, so if you're a kind of person who has reasonably decent credit, you can walk into a bank right now and get a 30-year mortgage for 4 to 5%. Yet we haven't seen the home ownership rate rebound back to some of those levels that we had seen a few years back. Yeah, because the home ownership rate, as a very important part of this, has been relatively depressed for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And is now, as you can see in this chart here, starting to go up. It's not at any dramatic tear to the upside, but it's very good news that the home ownership rate finally has stopped falling and begun to move higher. You can think about, well, how much more can it go up? Well, it all depends on credit availability and very importantly, of course, the labor market, whether people have a job, because that's the right. main thing that you asked about when you ask if you can get a mortgage. Right. It all depends on how well the economy is doing. The Federal Reserve has done everything in its power to make sure that the economy is well supported, including buying treasuries again, although it says it's not QE. A lot of people in the market still call it some kind of QE. What do you think? So at least the fact that the, tre- the, the, the treasuries that are bought and taken out of the market, that gives some cash into the market, and those who end up with those amount of dollars in their hands eventually use that for something else. And the question is, do they use that for buying uh, commercial paper, cr- IG credit? Do they use it for buying stocks? We just don't know. But what we do know is that the uh, the repo market problems at least look more manageable, and we do still think that as we get to the end of the year, it will also be basically a non-event in that sense that things are still under control. The Fed really are on this ball and know what's going on. I don't know if we have your last chart on, on some what the, some of the commercial banks are doing and them, them shifting assets, because we talk a lot about what the Fed's been doing on the short end of the curve oh, with is. the re- repo market here. And this idea, too, that as they do this, I mean, we're still kind of dealing with this bump up against IOER. Yeah, exactly. What commercial banks have been holding on the balance sheets, over the last uh, several months, we've seen quite a significant move higher in the amount of securities, Mm. government securities that they're holding, and the amount of cash assets has been going down. Mm. So remember, what banks do is that they take the yellow line to the Fed, and they repo that, and they get cash in return. So that's why the issue is that if simply, if you have fewer security, I'm sorry, less cash and more securities that you need to put into repo, you simply have a lot more demand for for repo, and at the same time, the supply of Treasury has also been going up. So that's why the source of stress really has been this significant change in the balance sheet for the banking sector. That's basically creating a lot of new situations in demand and supply and repo markets overall. Then I sat down with Danielle Yanis, CEO of Checker, a background check company that uses artificial intelligence and machine learning to make hiring more inclusive and efficient. In the U.S., 70 million Americans, or one in three adults, have some form of a criminal record and therefore have difficulty reintegrating into the workforce. We talked about Danielle's goal to help people with criminal records get back to work. 
Yes, so our mission at Checker is to build a fairer future by improving understanding of the past. Since we are a background check company and we're disrupting our space, we were able to see the cracks in the system and the challenges. Um, background checks have been very binary in the past, so either people had a clean background and would be easily hired, or they would have made potential mistakes and have flags and being rejected almost all the time. And so what we made possible is for businesses to really decide where they want to be and to customize their criteria um, for each job they have. So that allows more people to be hired. Um, it allows businesses to be able to hire more candidates, have a, a bigger um, talent pool, which is key today with this you know, low unemployment. Um, businesses are struggling to find enough workers, so it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and you use AI and machine learning, but that, of course, is only as good as your programmers. Otherwise, a lot of unconscious biases get built into the system as well. Who's designing your algorithms? Yeah, so we have a, a, team, a large team of engineers. Um, the good thing is that our mission is really, you know, um, key and the North Star for everyone in our company. So when engineers design algorithms, they think about the customer needs and the safety aspect, for instance, but they also think about our mission. And so many times we've had, you know, engineers or product managers who say, we cannot do this because it would really, you know, conflict with our mission. It would negatively impact or be biased for consumers. So that is one way to, to make sure that we, we design fair algorithms that don't negatively impact workers. You're based in San Francisco, so and you're a startup yourself. You used the word disrupt earlier, so clearly a lot of your clients are startups that disrupt as well, Ubers, Lyfts, that kind of thing. Talk a little bit about your client list, because startups make up a portion of it, but how does it compare to, say, more established companies, more traditional old economy companies? Yes, so like many startups, we started by working with other startups or technology companies, and, um, and we're f famous for doing the background checks for companies like Grubhub and Uber uh, or Lyft. But um, our technology applies to any business, any business who has a lot of employees. And um, now we're working with very established uh, companies like uh, Allstate or um, Deco or Netflix are some of our customers. And for these older companies, are they using your service as a supplement to their existing approach or as a, as a replacement for what they used to do? It's as a replacement. We now are uh, offering a complete platform with the entire suite of services that any multinational needs to um, assess and evaluate their, their workforce. Mm -hmm. And then after everything gets put through your algorithm, that's when people come in and start looking at what you vetted and the, the list that you've culled things down to. Yeah, so we, we are able to structure the data and to make it flexible. And so this way, each one of our clients can decide to configure their criteria. Mm -hmm. So we work with each client um, individually, and they design their recruiting rules. They are able to adapt them and change them. And then we help them automate those decisions to make sure they're compliant um, and fair, um, and they, they meet their business needs. Can you give me some examples of how the criteria that your clients customize uh, has changed or has evolved over the last couple of years, given that our economy is different than it was a couple of years ago and the kinds of things that we watch out for are different as well. Yes, so you know, we as a company are very focused on fair chance hiring, on giving people second chances. Um, but not all businesses are ready to, to take that step um, for you know, different types of crimes. So one way we've been working with a lot of companies is really to start with simple minor 
uh, violations, like driving violations or possession of marijuana, for instance, mm -hmm. are offenses that are not that relevant anymore to businesses. And so by being able to have specific rules for those, they've been able to hire you know, thousands of more uh, workers and to make their um, processes much more efficient. So that's one way where it's a win-win for consumers getting jobs and for businesses um, being able to access the, the talent they need. And these used to be offenses that in the past, they would have knocked them out completely. Exactly. Got it. Okay. We talked a little bit about the traditional old economy companies that are um, make up your client list. You also have, like I mentioned, Uber, Lyft, uh, some of these startups as well. Talk a little bit about the challenges specific to the vetting process when it comes to companies that are involved in the gig economy. Yeah, so for the gig economy, I think the, the challenge, there's been a lot of safety challenges, right? You've seen in the news, um, it can be, you know, people get into people's homes or you're with someone in a car. So those situations have more safety risk than the normal uh, job environment. And so those businesses need the most accurate, advanced safety technology. And Checker is the most you know, advanced technology. We kept innovating every year to adapt to those higher and higher standards and needs. Um, those are also being regulated. You have regulations now for um, TNC companies in pretty much every state. TNC? Um, uh, driving ride-sharing companies. Mm -hmm. And so um, Checker has partnered with the, the leading gig economy companies to, to keep innovating. One example is um, we created and developed uh, continuous background checks. Mm -hmm. In the past, the background check was a one-time solution. Um, we created a real-time continuous background check that allows to keep track and, and monitor um, those workforces. Um, and this is used in ride sharing and in- So it's not just a snapshot of a moment in time. Yes. Okay, understood. Um, I wanna go back to your saying um, how you are able to put millions of Americans who might have some minor offenses in their record to work. Um, you say the company's on a journey to put 70 million Americans with criminal records back to work. Talk about some of the misperceptions, the common misperceptions of this particular demographic. Yes, so there's 70 million uh, Americans who have some type of criminal records. Um, it's going to be a long journey to put everyone back to work because a lot of people are, are blocked. But our goal is to um, you know, help people get back into the workforce as well because you know, people have made mistakes. The justice systems um, you know, works in that way that people pay their dues, their fines potentially you know, go to prison, but then you know, it's important for the society to be able to reintegrate those people and have them be productive citizens again. Otherwise, you have, you know, millions of people who are marginalized or going back to, to prison, which is bad for the economy and, and for the taxpayers, for everyone. And so um, what we can do is really help businesses and um, working with nonprofits and partners mm -hmm. to make that, you know, rehabilitation and transition uh, possible. And, uh, and that's what we've, what we've been doing. Um, even internally in our company, we have given second chances to, to workers to be able to get uh, you know, a high paying tech job, mm -hmm. which is a first. Um, usually it's been you know, companies like um, Goodwill Industries or the restaurant industry or, or more like blue collar companies mm -hmm. that have given people second chances. We're one of the first uh, you know, white collar or technology company who is able to put people back to work and, and offer great jobs. And um, business-wise, for us, it's it's been a, it's been a big success as well. Um, those workers are, you know, highly motivated, very grateful for the opportunity, uh, with the best retention and, and productivity that that we've seen. And so we're we're sharing this as part of our diversity reports and sharing this with uh, 
with other technology or, or large companies as well. You talk about diversity. Do you screen for things as well, such as genders, such as ethnicities, such as such as uh, ability or disability? Yes. So. Um, you know, we're, we're big on diversity. I think in the technology companies and startups, everyone talks about diversity, but the results are pretty bad. Yeah. And it's one of the least diverse industries. And so, you know, we actually act on it and, and really, um, really try to do things differently. And so we do track, you know, gender diversity, there's different dimensions of diversity mm -hmm. that are important, um, age, um, race, uh, education, mm -hmm. and we are... Um, and you can screen and filter by that. No, we don't. Our, our product only focuses on, on background checks. Mm -hmm. um, but internally, in our diversity reports with our HR team, we, we also keep track of those uh, statistics. And um, we're very proud that we've made you know, diversity a big priority from the top of the company. And um, we have you know, over 45% um, women in the company including in the leadership team, we have over 40%. Um, what about among leaders. engineers? Uh, in tech, which has been usually very hard, we have about 40% of female um, uh, employees in our tech teams, uh, which is, I think, one of the highest in, in Silicon Valley. Um, we have about over 25% underrepresented minorities. Mm -hmm. And our special dimension of diversity at Checker that we introduced, which is fair chance, mm -hmm. hires people who have a criminal record in the past, is about 10%. So 10% of our workforce in-house um, is fair chance candidates. And uh, uh, we're very proud of, of that uh, metric. And, and we want to help um, it make, uh, make it um, uh, a new dimension of diversity for other companies as well. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.